afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is Perfect Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, coral reefs, diamond cells, and global cooling. In addition, we're joined by Professor Franz Duvall, who will talk about our inner ape. Also, we'll find out how big the universe is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grokks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty rich today, actually. Swimming with the money bags, or are you um, like eating too much fat? All that diamond. It's just mostly carbon, actually. Right. Transform that graphite like Superman in your... Yeah, if I imagine if you could actually eat diamonds. Well, if I had enough money to actually eat diamonds, I don't think I'd be eating the diamonds. No? <laughs> Caviar, uh, maybe. So it turns out one day we may actually do that. Some scientists in Taiwan have actually made nano diamond particles, and it looks like it's a good way to track how uh, immune cells move around your body. And what they found with these nanoparticles is that once you excite them with a laser, it'll actually glow for quite a while basically a way of tagging the cell. It's a little biomarker that fluoresced for a little while, I guess. Oh, okay. So is it a pure diamond or is it some other kind of carbon nanotube kind of thing? Or what's the it's structure? It's 100 nanometer particle of oh. uh, carbon. And oh. apparently it has the property of absorbing some light and then slowly releasing it for a while. Oh, wow. I'd heard that synthetic diamonds were more likely to do that than naturally formed diamonds. Probably. But this is very interesting because this stuff presumably is actually quite safe. They've already tested on human livers. And it seems like we can actually consume this point once they get it ready. Oh, wow. The, the reason we'd actually want to tag our immune cells in the future? See how they respond to certain pathogens, how they uh, gather around the infection site. But this is very cool stuff, and it was reported in the recent edition of JAX. All right. Have you had your daily dose of bananas today? You mean my uh, potassium? <laughs> it's high in potassium. It's high in fruity goodness. Yeah, my muscle fatigue is gone. <laughs> They are succulent and sweet, but did you know they existed in Africa more than 4,500 years ago? I guess it's not a new world crop then, huh? <laughs> Actually, this is uh, quite a bit of a surprise because they didn't think uh, it was introduced in Africa any earlier than about 2,000 years ago. Huh. But a recent archaeological study, which was led by a team consisting of Julius Leju of Mabara University in Uganda... Peter Robertshaw of uh, California State University, San Bernardino, and David Taylor of Trinity College in Dublin. They basically went in, analyzed some sediment samples, and did some radioactive carbon dating like they do, mm-hmm. and found that Banana Society existed in Africa all those many years ago. So who was eating it, the monkeys or the guys? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how good uh, farmers' monkeys are, but <laughs> I think uh, you have to sort of whip them a lot, and they'll start planting it. Huh. So does this change any prevailing theories as to how vegetation has evolved? Well, at least changes ideas as far as how early they think uh, bananas were introduced into these particular civilizations. Mm -hmm. So it suggests that these type of cultivations were existing long before people thought. Right. And it's actually a bit of a controversy because there was another site where they found banana growth much earlier as well. And uh, this sort of seems to corroborate that there's this very early banana culture. So speaking of ancient food, I think last year some uh, archaeologists in China found that the Chinese have been eating noodles a lot longer than their previous lot. Right. I mean, it is a staple diet, so uh, I'd be surprised if they were eating sweet and sour dish as early as 3000 BC. <laughs> you mean General Charles Chicken? <laughs> anyway, this is very fascinating work, and it was published in a recent edition of the Journal of Archaeological Science. Yeah. 
so this next story is not about food. Uh, that's too bad. I was starting to get hungry. Yeah, me too. It's actually about global cooling. If uh, there's global cooling, then there might be less food. So, you know, one of the controversies means is how much the soot or man-made aerosols contribute to the global warming or cooling effect. Mm-hmm. And a recent study uh, carried out from the UK's Meteorological Office and the uh, U.S. National Oceanographic Administration finds that human man-made aerosols have a much significant cooling effect than they were previously thought to have. Okay, and so this is presumably because it's reflecting the sunlight so they can't reach the Earth. Right, so the range that they have is between 0.2 and 1 watt per meter and they're estimating with these new uh, models, it's about 0.8, just closer to the higher end. And contrast, you know, greenhouse gases account for about 2.4 watts per meter of heating. So it's it's not quite enough to offset it, but it balances it a little more than they thought. A little thought. bit more. But what these guys conclude here is that if we actually have efforts to reduce the soot from power plants and vehicles, it may actually lead to more hmm. warming because there's less particles to reflect the light off. Oh, okay. I presume these studies remain controversial since some people implicate soot as absorbing right. instant radiation. I mean, it probably has a little bit of both functions, right? Right. It depends I, on the type of particle. Right. Right. I, I would just say build a giant mirror. Fucked <laughs> <laughs> it off. Yes. Of course, we'd, we'd need Superman to put it up there. Wait, isn't he coming out this year? I think he might be, yeah. June uh, 2006, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm waiting for it. All right, and this is reported in a recent edition of Nature. All right, and finally, a few more things about the environment, especially coral reefs. Coral reefs? Aren't they dying? For the most part, yes, all thanks to humans. We suck. (laughs) Yeah. But it turns out some humans are not so bad because they're actually implementing a no-fishing zone in the Caribbean, uh-huh. which appears to actually be helping the coral reef population. Wow, I guess it was Rush Limbaugh, one of those guys, commenting that abandoned oil wells in the Gulf are actually helping build the coral reefs. Is there anything big oil can't do? <laughs> I think it might be able to cure cancer. I'm not sure. But so it turns out that there's a particular type of grouper that swims around in the ocean. Uh-huh. It feeds on these parrotfish, right. which apparently help to clean the ocean bottom and allow the coral to read. Does the parrotfish also talk? I don't, uh, can you even talk underwater? What would a parrotfish say? I want a cracker. (laughs) Nevertheless, these parrotfish, uh, they clean up the ocean floor and the coral is able to grow there. It was thought that if you stop fishing, perhaps these groupers would uh, eat up these parrotfish and the coral wouldn't be able to grow. But the ecosystem is very complicated despite mm-hmm. the fact. And if you create the snow fishing zone, still the coral reef thrives in this environment. Oh, nice. Yeah, so just goes to show that trying to protect diversity in any form usually does some good things. Nature is strong. <laughs> this is a very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, Professor Franz Duvall will join us to discuss our inner ape. So stay tuned.
Berkeley Grok's science show. Well, human behavior comes in a variety of flavors. We can be at once kind and mean, intelligent and stupid, and caring and brutal. While the lesser of these attributes is often ascribed to our evolutionary heritage, our nobler qualities often are considered uniquely human. But is this so? Perhaps even these better qualities are rooted in our primal ancestry. Well, joining us today to discuss these issues is Professor Franz Duval. Professor Duval is a renowned primatologist and author of several popular books on primates, including Chimpanzee Politics and Bonobo, the Forgotten Ape. His technical work has appeared in journals such as Science, Nature, and Scientific American, and he is currently the C.H. Chandler Professor in the Psychology Department at Emory University and Director of the Living Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. His new book, Our Inner Ape, explores the connection between human and ape behavior. Professor Duvall, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Well, I'm glad to be there. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program because you, you have written, a, I think, a really fascinating book about the connection between uh, human and ape behavior. I'm curious, first of all, how did you become interested in this topic? Oh, I've been interested all my life in animals. I'm an animal lover, so as, such as many naturalists are, really. And, and so I ended up doing animal behavior and, in the end, primate behavior. And once I got into primate behavior, uh, making the connections with human behavior, it's so evident when you watch primates that uh, I got into popularization and things like that. Uh, it's interesting, I guess, in your book, you, you sort of concentrate on two particular apes, the chimpanzees and the bonobos. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have probably heard about the connection between human and chimp behaviors being particularly aggressive, but I don't think a lot of people have heard of the, the bonobo story of, of these peace-loving apes. Yeah, the thing is that um, bonobos are uh, equally close to us as chimpanzees, exactly equally close. And, um, of course, they are our closest relatives in the sense that a chimp is even closer genetically to us than a chimp is to a gorilla, which is very hard to grasp for some people, but that's how it is. Hmm. So, uh, yes, very few people know about bonobos. That's partly because... In the field, they are endangered. In captivity, there's only like 150 of them all all over the world in captivity, whereas there are many thousands of chimpanzees. Hmm. And so they are much less known, uh, and their behavior is totally different. And so one of the, the arguments I make is one of the reasons that the bonobo has been ignored is that the behavior doesn't fit the scenarios that anthropologists are so fond of. And those scenarios, they emphasize human aggressiveness and warfare and male dominance, hmm. all sorts of violent things that make us what we are, and the bonobo is not like that. The bonobo is like a primate hippie. would would fit perfectly at Berkeley, I suppose. <laughs> it's, it's like a pot-smoking uh, ape, you know, who takes it easy, and uh, the females dominate, and they have no warfare between groups. And so anthropologists had a lot of trouble what to do with an animal like that, even mm. though it's so close to us. And so how do people reconcile the, this completely opposite behavior compared to chimps then? Well, I think what most anthropologists have done in their scenarios of human evolution is just ignore the bonobo. Mm. And they will usually say the bonobo is a derived species, is a recent offshoot of the chimp, and so we can just ignore them. Mm. Whereas there's absolutely no evidence for that. There's mm. zero evidence that the last common ancestor was more chimp like them bonobo-like. We really don't know that. Mm. And I would argue, and that's what I argue in that book, is that they're equally relevant to us because mm. they're equally close to us. They should be equally part of the picture that we draw. And yes, if the females are dominant and if they have no warfare, well, we need to start working with that in our scenarios. Is it known why these two branches evolved completely separate behaviors? Do they know why particularly bonobos would have the more peace-loving characteristics? 
No, there are certain things that we know about our ecology is that bonobos live in a richer forest mm. and they have no competition in that forest of gorillas because they don't overlap with gorillas, whereas chimpanzees areas where the chimpanzees live, the gorillas eat a lot of the ground cover uh, that the chimps otherwise might be eating. And so the bonobos have a, an easier life in their forest. And as a result, the females can travel together because female chimps are, are forced to spread out because otherwise they don't get enough to eat. They have to, to travel on their own, which makes them vulnerable to male aggression. And that's why the males and chimps are completely dominant over females. Whereas in bonobos, the females travel as one group together, meaning that there's solidarity among the females, meaning that they can actually counter the mm. aggressiveness of the males. So the ecology of the bonobo has made it possible to have the sort of social system that they have. I see. In your book, you actually draw a lot of parallels, almost direct parallels, between uh, chimp, bonobo, and human behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, how close do you think we are to, I guess, both the chimps and the bonobos as far as our behavior, and what do we derive from them and share with their qualities? Well, basically everything. So I consider humans basically apes. We're bipedal apes with mm -hmm. large brains. There's, there's no reason to set us apart. Linnaeus, who, who long before Darwin already was involved in the taxonomy, uh, he wanted actually to put humans and chimps in the same genus. And he, he wrote in a letter that he didn't do it because he would get into trouble with the <laughs> church. And he realized that. But, but there is, we are basically apes. And so socially, emotionally, you could say psychologically, we're really not that different from a regular bonobo or chimpanzee. There's only one area uh, in human cognition with, which is associated with abstract thinking and language where I would say we are vastly different. But that's not really affecting our basic emotional and social life. Hmm. And so I consider it as very similar in that regard. And then the other difference that I see, um, and I've explained that, is that chimpanzee and bonobo societies are basically promiscuous. Mm -hmm. And so males and females have sex with basically everybody. Mm -hmm. And males are not involved in parental care at all. So mm -hmm. it's all the female's job to care for the offspring. Mm -hmm. And that's quite different than our species. Our species is a, um, a family building, a pair bonding species, mm -hmm. like many birds, basically. <laughs> We're more bird-like in that regard than actually the apes. And so our family as the co cornerstone of society, uh, that's something that is uh, typically human. Hmm. So a major question then is, how do our behaviors then politically relate to these ape-like behaviors? Um, there's uh, two levels you can compare. One, one is that if you look at chimpanzees, uh, I've written this book, Chimpanzee Politics, mm -hmm. the chimpanzee males, what they do in order to gain power is so extremely human-like that, that you cannot avoid drawing parallels with human politics. You cannot be the dominant male on your own. There's no way of doing that because there's a very strong tendency in them to form coalitions. And if you are a bully and you want to become the dominant male, they will get rid of you. And so the only way to become the dominant male is to have friends and to give these friends something of your power. So, for example, to give them certain privileges, usually food privileges or access to females. And so you get all this deal-making among the males, like uh, I groom you and you will support me in a fight against somebody else who is my rival. And, and so you get all this sort of deal-making that we also know of Washington and other places. Mm -hmm. and, and so at that level, there's an enormous comparison with politics. And then there's another level, which is much more a grand level of society. That is, in our societies, we discuss whether we should be solidary with the poor or not, whether we should share power with certain groups or not, or exclude them from power. Mm. 
And at that level, I take the position that this whole accent that we have in, in, for example, current society on what I call social Darwinism, which is basically every man for himself and and the poor just have to fend for themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not really a primate way. The, The primates, including chimpanzees, but especially bonobos, have very high levels of solidarity and empathy. And to just abandon someone. So, for example, what happened after Katrina? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you heard that the people in the in the dome who were locked up there, mm-hmm. they said we have been left behind like animals. Well, mm-hmm. when I read that, the first thought that came to me is that not all animals would necessarily do that. Mm-hmm. So, so you've been left behind like humans, more like <laughs> like animals, I would say. And so this whole emphasis that nature is red in tooth and claw, nature is the law of the strongest or the law of the jungle. That's a misconception of nature, because nature is full of animals that survive by cooperation, meaning that they have some level of solidarity, and it's not every man for himself, because a chimpanzee on his own or a bonobos on his own cannot even survive, so so they do have to cooperate with others. These sort of behaviors of chimpanzees in particular have often been used to, I guess, justify human political behavior or even human aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Do you think the ideas of these bonobos then could then be used to now justify a more peaceful type of society? Yeah, the bonobos can serve to break open that kind of thinking a little bit because there has been this closed system of thought in anthropology about human evolution, which is that we got where we are by killing off everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, we killed off the Neanderthals, but we killed off everybody else as well. And so, uh, and that's and that's our success story. And I would say, well, human aggressiveness—I don't know if it has produced beautiful things, but. Um, <laughs> It's not the only issue we should be looking at if we talk about human evolution. If, and if we look at bonobos, for example, we see that empathy, cooperation, altruism are very important. Uh, sexiness, of course, it's a very sexy animal, and they resolve issues among themselves with sex, and that's why I call them make love, not war primates. And so the bonobo shows us alternative ways of doing things. And since the bonobo is equally close to us, it's equally relevant to the debate. And so in in some areas of science... There has been all this emphasis on how we are nasty and selfish and violent, and that's what got us where we are, and I'm not sure that that's the case at all. Uh, Are there some human societies that are more chimp-like or more bonobo-like than others? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't want to insult any society, (laughs) but... uh, It's kind of a loaded question, but... (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, the bonobos are more egalitarian and peaceful, and and the chimps are more aggressive and warlike. I think in our societies, usually we blend the two. We we have mm-hmm. both a little bit of both, and and of course some societies, like the American society, is more individualistic and competitive oriented, and other societies are more oriented towards egalitarian relationships or or cooperative relationships. But but every society has to blend these two because you cannot have a society that is purely competitive because mm-hmm. the whole thing would fall apart. Mm-hmm. And you cannot have a society that is purely egalitarian mm. and wonderful and holding hands together and all of that, because there would be no progress in that society at all. Mm. And so I think um, every place seeks some sort of optimum between those two. Indeed. As sort of a lesson for our human behavior, can our behavior change? We're not sort of rooted to one particular mode of behavior or the other. Yeah, I think we are an incredibly flexible species. I think that there's, there's plenty of evidence for that and uh, our cultural variability. Well, we do speak of culture, of course, in the primate world now as well. And I don't know if you know about that, but there's, there's a lot of research, and I'm involved in that as well, on how 
primates transmit knowledge and habits among mm-hmm. themselves, not genetically, but socially. Mm-hmm. And so they have some cultural variability, but our species is incredibly flexible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we can take us in almost any direction. But the more we know about our human nature, let's say where our tendencies and our psychology comes from, the better we will be equipped to steer things in a particular direction, I think. So uh, you know that our DNA is 98.5% identical to Mm -hmm. that of chimps and bonobos. Now, that 1.5% difference is maybe a wonderful difference. Maybe it's doing great stuff. But biologically, we will always remain the primates that we are. Mm -hmm. And psychologically, I, I think there's no... To transcend biology, which is apparently the dream of a lot of people, Mm. but to transcend biology is an impossibility. Mm. We are biological creatures. We are made of flesh and blood, and uh, that's what we have to live with. Uh, Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, I think we have to do the best we can with what we got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Professor Duvall, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks and discussing your fascinating book, Our Inner Ape. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Franz Duvall discussing Our Inner Ape. You're listening to the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world famous question of the week. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, we're back from the break, and our guest, Professor Franz Duvall, author of Our Inner Ape, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, again, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen our topic, chimpanzee or bonobo. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they more like a chimpanzee or a bonobo? Professor Duvall, are you ready to play your game? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Uh, person number one, chimpanzee or bonobo, Apple CEO Steve Jobs. Bonobo. I think he has this alternative quality to him. Is that He's not sort of the law and order type. He's more like an ex-hippie type, I think. Yeah, I think so. Trying to bring the computing to the masses, it seems. Yeah. Right. Okay, uh, number two, ex-Enron CEO Kenneth Lay. Chimp. Someone who, uh, who, who bribes and swaggers and thinks he's, he's big shot alpha male. Yeah. <laughs> he has been brought down. A little too chimp-like, I think. Mm. Uh, number three, famed uh, anthropologist Louis Leakey. I think he's, a, he's an alpha male type. He's, a, he's really a chimp mm. chimp type. Um, he, he surrounded himself with female scientists, which is sort of interesting, like a harem building. Mm. It's almost more like, more like the gorilla type, then, in that sense. Because gorillas do that. Huh. Uh, number four, Martha Stewart. High-ranking bonobo female. 
showing all the other bonobos how to <laughs> how to uh, fix the house. <laughs> all right. Okay. And number five, finally, of course, the president of the United States, George Bush. Uh, chimp-like. It, it, it's actually funny because he has this swagger when he walks, which is very much the bipedal swagger that we know of chimpanzee males. Mm -hmm. so, so he sends out these signals of extreme dominance, uh, even though they're mixed with signals of insecurity. Yes. Hmm. So, so it's an interesting alpha male. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Duvall, I, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around to play our game, The Grokatron 5000. You're welcome. And, uh, and, of course, talking about your book, Our Inner Ape. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and okay, it sounds like Kissinger is the answer to last week's question of the week. The UN is big, yeah, but how big was the universe? About 10 billion light years. Uh, that's as big as my foreign policy. And Forrest here with this week's question of the week. Well, down here in the south, we got hurricanes all the time. And this year, our bubblegum shrimp had no shrimp because we got this big hurricane. But, you know, I wondered, does it spin clockwise or counterclockwise and why? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but at least you won't get dizzy. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lane. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.